The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. When he had spit on the man's eyes and put his hands on him, Jesus asked, Do you see anything? He looked up and said, I see people. They look like trees walking around. Once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened, his sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. In an article for the New Yorker titled, To See and Not See, neurologist Oliver Sacks tells the story of a patient of his who lost his eyesight as a kid but was able to regain it amazingly at the age of 50 through a surgical operation. But as Dr. Sachs and this patient uh, under the pseudonym Virgil discovered, having the physical capacity for sight is not quite the same thing as seeing. Virgil's first experiences with regained vision were disorienting. He could make out colors, and movements, but, but he struggled to arrange them into a coherent picture. Even though the operation had been a physical success, and over time he did learn to identify various objects, his habits, his behaviors were still those of a blind man. Reflecting on this unexpected struggle in his patient, Dr. Sachs writes, quote, One must die as a blind person to be born again as a seeing person. It is the interim, the limbo, that is so terrible. Our passage this morning brings us directly into that interim, that uncomfortable, unsettling period between the habits of blindness and the gift of true sight. Please turn with me in your Bibles to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, it's always important to situate ourselves in light of the context, but it's especially so this morning because Mark's artistry, his literary genius is on full display. And if we miss it, we will miss something about what he's up to. We'll miss something of the meaning embedded in his narrative structure. The first thing to note is that we have arrived, congratulations Young church, we have arrived at the great continental divide in Mark's gospel. Mark's gospel is basically broken up, separated into two major parts, roughly chapters 1 to 8, answering the question, who is Jesus? And chapters 9 to 16, answering the question, what has he come to do? But some scholars also point out that the two chapters and some change here in the middle form their own distinct section, or at least a subsection, 
in that larger breakdown. Specifically, chapters chapter 8, verse 22, through the end of chapter 10. 8.22 through the end of chapter 10, because it's a section that is bookended by two healings of a blind man. The first we're going to look at this morning, and the second at the end of chapter 10, when Bartimaeus receives his sight. Now, what's the significance of all this? Am I just telling you this because it's interesting? Well, if you saw everything I leave on the cutting room floor every week, you would know I don't share things if they're merely interesting. Now, I'm sharing this because it's essential. Mark is showing through these two bookends, these healings of physical blindness, he's showing the disciples' need and our need to be healed of spiritual blindness. In the first eight chapters, we've seen such blindness on full display in the religious leaders, in the crowds, in Jesus' family, and yes, even in his disciples. In fact, in the previous scene we looked at last Sunday, do you remember what Jesus rebuked them for in the boat? Verse 17, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still not see? The bookends are about literal blindness, but the stories in the middle are about an even deeper kind, which means that the journey to Jerusalem, which is about to commence, the journey to Jerusalem is going to be a struggle for sight. Here's what I think is the main idea of these verses. Through his healing touch, Jesus the King gives spiritual sight but it rarely happens all at once. Through his healing touch, Jesus the King gives spiritual sight, but it rarely happens all at once. We're going to see this main idea in two scenes. First, a puzzling miracle, and second, a pivotal confession. A puzzling miracle, that's verses 22 to 26. A pivotal confession, that's verses 27 to 30. First, a puzzling miracle. As Carol read the story uh, just before I came up here, the details may have sounded familiar to you, and that's because they're meant to. Mark is reporting this story on the heels of a different episode at the end of the previous chapter. Remember chapter 7? You can look back there. Verses 32 and 33. Chapter 7, 32 and 33, there some people brought to Jesus a man who was deaf and could hardly talk, and they begged Jesus to place his hand on him. After he took the man, the deaf and mute man aside, away from the crowd, and then now look back at chapter 8 and hear the same language, starting in verse 22. They came to Bethsaida, and some people brought a blind man and begged Jesus to touch him. He took the blind man by the hand and led him outside the village. In both stories, people bring disabled men to Jesus. They beg him to lay his hands on them. Jesus withdraws and leads the men to a private place where he applies his healing touch. Remember, in that previous episode, we noted the fact that the ancient world was a brutal place for persons like this. 
but that Jesus, you remember how he stooped to accommodate to the deaf and mute man's struggle, how he met him where he was at and essentially communicated with him in sign language? These are the only two miracles that only appear in Mark's gospel. These are the only two miracles that only show up in Mark's gospel. We are meant to hear the echoes between them. So now, in verse 23, chapter 8, verse 23, it's just Jesus, the blind man, and the disciples. And Mark reports that Jesus puts spittle on the man's eyes, and and, and then he asks, do you see anything? This is the only time in the Gospels when Jesus asks a question like this. Usually, he heals someone and then issues an instruction, not asks, how did it go? I mean, this is the kind of question a doctor would ask about the success or not of his or her operation. But Jesus has a reason for the question. Remember the question he put to the disciples on the boat, what we, what we looked at a few minutes ago. Do you not see? The disciples are watching. Jesus asks this question, do you see anything? What is a miracle for the blind man is a parable for the disciples. Do you see anything yet? Verse 24, the man looked up and said, I see people, but it looks like an old VHS tape. Kids, you can ask your parents what that is after church. No, the man says, I see people. He's probably referring to the disciples, but they look like trees walking around. The fact that the man knows what trees look like, looks like, probably means that he wasn't born blind. But regardless of how he reached this state, he is destitute and desperate for sight. And Jesus hasn't fully given it to him yet. Now this is a massive distraction, a towering distraction that we can't avoid. We have to address what happened here. I mean, after all, this is the only miracle in the gospel I know I keep saying that, but there's a lot of unique things about this passage. This is the only miracle in the Gospels that occurs in stages. Is this the equivalent of Jesus just frankly hitting a foul ball and having to step up to the plate and try again? I mean, have we finally found a deficiency in this man? Well, no. As I said, this miracle is more than a miracle. It's an enacted parable. This partial healing is an object lesson about the disciples' partial understanding. It's why Mark places it, deliberately places it between scenes of blindness and sight, blindness on the boat and sight in Peter's confession. Verse 25, once more, Jesus put his hands on the man's eyes. Then his eyes were opened. His sight was restored. And he saw everything clearly. Now, technically, uh, I was an editor for 10 years, so this kind of thing uh, tends to bother me. Technically, this is repetitive, okay? His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. Why would Mark, who wastes no ink 
Of all the gospel authors, Mark is the one who wastes no ink. Why would Mark put it like this? We can't know for sure, but I'll give you a conjecture. It's because he's hearing this from Peter, and this is the very kind of way eyewitness testimony sounds. And then his sight was restored, and, and, then, and then get this, Mark, he saw everything clearly. It was amazing to be there. In these first eight chapters, we have seen Jesus perform miracle after miracle. I mean, these pages have read just like a Rolodex of wonders. In chapter one, he casts out a demon, heals Peter's mother-in-law, and cleanses a leper. In chapter two, he heals a paralytic. In chapter three, he heals a man with a withered hand. In chapter five, he drives out a legion of demons, heals a bleeding woman, and raises a synagogue ruler's daughter. In chapter seven, he heals a Gentile woman's daughter, as well as the deaf and mute man. It's worth pausing and just asking, and I've, I've thought about making this point in previous sermons as we've looked at any of these other miracles. I'm going to make it now. It's worth asking, what are we to make of this in a scientific age? I mean, let's not just think, oh, we're in church. Of course, we're supposed to be thinking about airy-fairy, holy things. No. What do we make of such miracles that can sound so primitive to modern ears? I mean, are we really supposed to believe that these accounts of Jesus are true? That Jesus really was over and over in his life, in the ancient Middle East 2,000 years ago, suspending the natural order? Well, no. Not exactly. You see, Jesus, when he heals people like this blind man, he's not just doing some kind of natural trick. He's previewing the world to come. In other words, he's not just hitting pause on the natural order of things. He is showing a trailer for the way things one day will be. He's not just suspending the natural order. He's restoring it. He's restoring it in miniature to the way things once were before sin entered and ravaged, ravaged and spoiled God's good creation and restoring it to the way things one day will be when Jesus splits the skies and comes back to make all things new. Some of you will be familiar with the name Fanny Crosby. Uh, she was born in 1820 and over the course of her life, she wrote a staggering 9,000 hymns. If you want to feel lazy this morning, there you go. Many of her hymns still reverberate through the voices of congregations around the world today. And remarkably, she was also blind. And one day, a, a pastor, I trust a well-intentioned pastor, said to her, I think it a great pity that the master did not give you sight when he showered so many other gifts upon you. Fanny responded, Do you know that if at birth I had been able to make one petition, it would have been that I be born blind? Because, because when I get to heaven, 
the first face that shall ever gladden my sight will be that of my Savior. And in 1915, that wish came true when she died and she saw his smiling face. And when this blind man's sight was restored, the first thing he would have detected was the face of his Savior, looking him in the eyes and smiling at him. Three applications, brief applications I want to think with you about in light of this story before we move on to Peter's confession. First of all, we, we just have to acknowledge that this is a really strange scene. I mean, yes, as I said earlier, Jesus was previewing the world to come. Yes, he was showing his disciples something about their own journey. But why this way? Why do it in a way that could be so confusing, so easily misunderstood? Well, of course, we don't exactly know. We don't know always what Jesus is up to in any given moment, do we? But brothers and sisters, we must fight to believe that there is a purpose in everything he does, even when it looks inexplicable and unnecessary. Sometimes we beg him to act at once, and he takes his sweet time. He works in stages, leaving us only with a fuzzy picture. But beloved, Jesus is God, which means that, of course, he's going to do some things differently than we would. One of the lessons we must accept and internalize is that there are, listen to me here, there are going to be lots of things in your life, lots of things that come to you, lots of things that happen to you that fit into God's mind, but don't fit into yours. But you realize that if it were any different, you wouldn't be reckoning with deity. You would just be reckoning with a cosmic projection of yourself. As one person put it, a God who is small enough to be understood is not big enough to be worshipped. Number two, this story should engender humility in us because if you this morning see Jesus as glorious and true and majestic and beautiful and worthy, you can't congratulate yourself at all. It's only because he touched you and opened your eyes. And this should engender not just humility, but also patience toward those who don't yet see. John Newton was a notorious slave trader when God opened his eyes to see the horror of his sin in the beauty of amazing grace. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. And later in life, Newton was reflecting on the implications of that. As you know, that song, Amazing Grace, which we're going to sing at the end of the service, that's his autobiography. 
And later in his life, Newton was reflecting on what are the implications if this is true? What are the implications if we once were blind but now have been made to see? And he offered an illustration. Quote, a company of travelers fall into a pit. A company of travelers fall into a pit. One of them gets a passenger to draw him out. Now, he should not be angry with the rest for falling in, nor because they are not yet out as he is. He did not pull himself out. Instead, therefore, of reproaching them, he should show them pity. A man truly illuminated will no more despise others than a blind man after his own eyes were open would take a stick and beat every blind person he met. Humility in us, patience, compassion for others. Third application. I want to speak for just a moment to you children and teens directly in light of this story in particular. See, you may believe in Jesus. You may perceive some spiritual reality, but if you're honest, it, it, it just kind of seems like a fuzzy picture. Here's my suggestion for you if you aren't content with that. If you want to not just see a blurry Jesus that frankly kind of makes you yawn, but if you want to be enthralled with Jesus, if you want to be captivated by him, satisfied with him, here's what you need to do. You need to just answer this question, how do you grow to start enjoying any person? Well, you spend time with them. That's the way you get to know someone. That's the way you experience someone. That's the way you start enjoying them. And the more time you spend with Jesus, the more you will see him for who he is. And the more you see him for who he is, the more enthralled and captivated and satisfied you will be. Okay, how though, you may think, how, how do I spend time with Jesus? Well, there's a lot of things I could say, but first and foremost, you you read the Bible. And when you read the Bible, don't expect some kind of magical, mystical spell to come over you. No, you can speak directly to the author and you can ask him, ask the Holy Spirit to unblind your heart to see the beauty that is staring at you from the pages of God's word. Another thing, another suggestion is to talk about, discuss the sermons you hear at RCBC with your parents. When they ask you over in the car or over lunch, what did you think of the sermon today? Don't just mumble out a, it was good. No, actually respond with a concrete, specific thing that you think maybe the Lord was bringing to your mind, in your heart, something God wanted to teach you. And this is something that will shock your parents. Then go a step further and say, and what about you? Ask what they thought of the sermon, not just what did you think it was good or bad, but 
How did the Lord speak to you through the preaching of his word? Was there anything in it that helped you, challenged you, encouraged you? And I would even say, find moments to ask your parents about their own walk with Christ. I know that that can feel a little weird, a little awkward, but, but do it because you realize your parents are much farther down, likely, if, if they've been walking with Jesus for many years, they're walking the same path you're trying to walk. Ask them about defining moments in their spiritual journey. I mean, here's a practical question for you, especially if, if you're, you're a teenager. Do you know your parents' testimony? Like, if I were to ask you, how did your parents come to see Jesus and embrace him by faith? Would you, would you be able to give me some of the high points in that story? If not, then I really encourage you, get to know Jesus by getting to better know your parents and hearing about what he has been up to in their lives and what he has accomplished in them. And that will flood your heart with hope and confidence and joy. And before you know it, you will find that you're putting one foot in front of the other on your own spiritual journey. If you want to grow in your ability to see You've got to start taking ownership for your spiritual life. Well, how does the story end? Verse 26. Jesus sent him home saying, don't even go into the village. As we've seen many times before, Jesus is not after publicity. He doesn't want misconceptions about the nature of his mission to be broadcast. First, he wants his identity to be grasped. Which leads to our second point, a pivotal confession, a pivotal confession. Verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. So here we're in a, a largely Gentile region, about 25, 25 miles north of Galilee. And as they're walking along, Jesus poses an unexpected question to his disciples. And I say unexpected because in the ancient world, in ancient Judaism, rabbis did not pose questions to their students. It was only the reverse. So this may be the, the first time that a rabbi had ever uttered a question like this. He looks at them and he says, what, who do people say I am? He's not asking what his family members think. We know that. He's not asking what does the religious establishment think of me? We know that. He, he's saying, What's the word on the street? And notice that he, his focus is not on his reputation. That's not what he's interested to figure out. It's not his reputation. It's his identity. He doesn't just say, hey, what are people saying about me? He says, who? Who do people say that I am? By this point in Mark's gospel, we've already heard this basic question surfaced several times. In chapter 2, after Jesus forgave the paralytic sins, the Pharisees were aghast. Who can forgive sins but God alone? In chapter 4, after he silenced the storm, the disciples were bewildered. Who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. In chapter 6, the people he grew up with in Nazareth said, where did this man get these things? Isn't this the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? Everyone has been trying to peg him 
to figure him out, to explain him. And ironically, the only ones to get it right so far through eight long chapters have been the demons. Chapter 1, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. Chapter 3, you are the Son of God. Chapter 5, what do you want with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? In Jesus, in Jesus Christ, the light of heaven has pierced the darkness of earth and the demonic powers have been put on notice. But humans keep coming to wrong conclusions. Verse 28, the disciples reply, Some say you are John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and still others, one of the prophets. In other words, you're in really good company. Like, these are favorable ratings in the polls. Your preaching is reminding people of John the Baptist. Your miracles are evoking associations with Elijah. The authority of your words makes people think of our nation's greatest prophets. See, there was something extraordinary about Jesus. I I never thought about this until this week. It's just a simple observation. It's not super profound. But I just realized there was something so extraordinary about Jesus that even those who didn't believe in him had to grasp for these exalted supernatural associations in order to explain him. There was no one apparently in the marketplace, on the street, who had just sort of a regular Joe explanation for Jesus. Like even the people who weren't following him were having to reach for some kind of supernatural way to explain him away. If you're not following Jesus, I want to level with you in love. I want to speak to you directly on this point. The disciples report all these high and lofty opinions of Jesus. All these high and lofty perspectives on Jesus and every single one of them was too low. Friend, it is not enough to have a high opinion of Jesus. It is not enough to have a high opinion of Jesus if that opinion is mistaken, if it's still too low. Richmond is filled with people, perhaps this describes you, that have no problem with Jesus. No problem with him. In fact, they kind of like him. The average person on the street in Richmond. And I, 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 I don't say this flippantly. I say this with, with sober love. The average person on the street in Richmond who is headed for an eternity apart from God is perfectly fine with Jesus. They respect him. They may even revere him. They may even pray to him so long as he doesn't interfere too much with their life. So long as he doesn't start to take the wheel and take control. Maybe you're fine with Jesus being in your life, but he's kind of like an app on your phone. Convenient, easily accessible, but also easy to ignore. 
Maybe you've even got him on the home screen. Maybe you think, man, I, I see Jesus there when I need him. He's, he's just a click away. But actually, you are managing him, not the reverse. You have relegated him to being something like an app on your phone, a useful but ignorable, a useful but ignorable part of your life. And if that's what you've relegated him to, friend, then you just don't yet grasp who he is. Because Christianity, hear me clearly, Christianity is not just about adding Jesus to your story. We're not a church who's just going to tell you that if you add a Jesus app to your life, that things are going to get better. No, Christianity is not about adding Jesus to your story. It's about submitting your life to his. So Jesus here is walking with his disciples on the road. They're, they're reporting that people think highly of him. And then he stops, and I imagine him turning and locking eyes with the disciples and essentially saying, you're next. Your turn. Verse 29, but what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Ding, ding, ding. For the first time in Mark's gospel, someone other than an evil spirit has rightly recognized who he is. The word Messiah, this word Messiah, appears nine times in the gospel of Mark, but this is only the second. The only time it's appeared so far is in the very first verse of the very first chapter. Remember Mark's prologue? This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God the son of Abraham. Peter and the disciples finally see Jesus, see him as stepping into prophetic expectation that is stretched back for thousands of years. Ever since the first gospel promise, we've looked at this in previous weeks, but by way of reminder, ever since the first gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 that one future male descendant from Eve's line would crush the serpent's head, and through the promise to Abraham in Genesis 12, that that same future descendant would mediate worldwide blessing to all the families of the earth. And through the promise to David in 2 Samuel 7, that on the throne of Israel will sit forever, not just a descendant of Eve, but a descendant of David. You see, after King, see, there's all this anticipation in the prophets about David, a coming David, a coming David, do you realize David was dead? David was dead. His bones were rotting away in a tomb, and yet the prophets were still speaking of a coming David, the ultimate anointed one, the ultimate Messiah. I want to show you two places where we hear this note of royal anticipation. Turn to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. Starting in verse 2. The people, so this is 
the prophet Isaiah writing 700 years before Jesus came to, came to earth. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. Okay, so how is this going to come about? How is this great light going to pierce the darkness? Look down at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. This is kingly language. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. He will reign on David's throne and over his kingdom, establishing and upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever. That's the witness of Isaiah. Let's hear now from another heavy hitter, Jeremiah. Very next book. Turn to Jeremiah 33. Jeremiah 33. Starting in verse 14. Jeremiah 33, 14. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise that I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. And all these centuries later, in Mark chapter 8, in this place called Caesarea Philippi, Peter looks at Jesus and essentially says, That's you. That's you. They finally saw clearly. Peter was speaking on behalf of the disciples, and even if it was just for a, a passing moment, they saw clearly what the Pharisees and Jesus' family and the crowds and the people on the street had missed, what they were groping in the dark and therefore not beholding. And the same is true today. It is not enough, as I said earlier, to have a high opinion of Jesus. Muslims have a high opinion of Jesus. They believe that he's one of the greatest prophets, but not the Messiah. Hindus have a high opinion of Jesus. They believe he's a divine being, but one of many and not the Messiah. Buddhists have a high opinion of Jesus. They believe he's an enlightened man, but not the Messiah. The average secular person on the street has a high opinion of Jesus. They believe he's a great teacher, an example, but not the Messiah. You will never in your life answer a more decisive question than the one that is facing you right now in the pages of Mark chapter 8. Who, Jesus asks, who do you say that I am? Your eternal destiny hangs on your response the response of your heart to that question. This afternoon, I'll teach our membership class to people interested in, in learning more about this church. And at the beginning, I'm going to say that shared fellowship, shared unity is only as deep as shared belief. Now, we are free 
here at RCBC to disagree about all sorts of things, secondary issues, tertiary issues, but we have come together with one shared answer, one shared answer to this primary question. We agree with Peter and with the disciples and with Mark. Jesus is not merely a great prophet or a divine being or an enlightened man or a good teacher or example. He is the Messiah, the Christ, the King, the Son of God and Savior of the world. Verse 30, Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. See, despite this flash of insight, the disciples knew just enough to be dangerous because they got the first half. They have the first half. You're the Messiah, but they don't have the second half. You're going to have to suffer and die. In other words, just like the man in the previous scene, they are still partially blind. Well, I mentioned at the outset that we've reached the great hinge point in Mark's gospel. It's worth reflecting as as we conclude on where we've come up to this point and where we're going. One commentator provides this very helpful summary. As you listen to these words, especially if you've been attending RCBC over the last eight months, Think back to all we've seen about who Jesus is on the pages of Mark's gospel. Quote, Peter's confession stands at roughly the midpoint of Mark. And like a continental divide separates the gospel into two major watersheds. In the first half, Jesus crisscrosses the Sea of Galilee without apparent purpose. But after, after Peter's confession, he is staunchly on the way to Jerusalem. The first half of Mark is a journey outward in which Jesus casts broadly. The second half is a journey inward to the source, to Jerusalem and the temple. Both halves of the gospel conclude with confessions of Christ. And both are associated with Roman Gentiles. The first is Peter's tentative confession at the Roman stronghold of Caesarea Philippi that Jesus is the Christ. The second is the full confession of the Roman centurion at the cross that Jesus is the Son of God. Both confessions, Peter's in the middle and the Roman centurion's at the end, teach that Jesus' true identity is revealed only through suffering and that those who were called to follow Jesus must be prepared to participate in his suffering. And speaking of his suffering, on the cross, Jesus was banished into the darkness. You know, at his birth, the angels created for the shepherds brightness at midnight. But at his death, it was darkness at noon. The sky went black when the Son of God incarnate hung and bore the righteous wrath of God in the place of sinners just like us. He was banished into the darkness 
so that we, through faith, can be welcomed into the light. And even on this side of the cross, we know more than Peter and the disciples knew at this point, but even on this side of the cross, we don't see perfectly, just like they didn't, we don't see perfectly, but the healing work has begun. And what Jesus begins, he will be faithful to carry on to completion until the day that our eyes close in death and then open to behold his smiling face. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we thank you for sending Jesus to open our eyes to see our need for a Savior and that he has made full and final provision for our need in his life and death and resurrection. And we ask that you would help us to take ownership of our spiritual lives, to not settle for a merely high opinion of you, but that we would bow our knees and live our lives as if you are truly the Messiah of Israel and the King of the world. It's in your beautiful name that we pray. Amen.